Okay, here we go. Let's start. So our topic for tonight will be uh, the 1950s in the Mossad and the Shin Bet. So traitors, double agents, and growing pains. I want to begin with uh, a story that I touched upon briefly in the last session a few weeks back, that of Alexander Israel, which uh, didn't end very well. It was a dark spot on the record of the Mossad. So Operation Engineer concerned this man, Alexander Israel. He was a Jew born in Sofia, Bulgaria, where he studied engineering, and he survived the Shoah, and he immigrated to Israel in 1949. He entered the military uh, as a naval captain and was given a fairly high security clearance. He married a, a Turkish Jew named Matilda Arditi, and as was the style of the time, because he moved to Israel, he took on a more Hebraic name. So instead of Alexander Israel, he became Avner Israel. His wife didn't know that he had a long police record. He was a scammer. He was a con man. And uh, one of his criminal enterprises was resulting in him going on trial on November 8th, 1954. Uh, he was also cheating on his wife having an affair with uh, a pretty young girl who was working at the Italian consulate in Haifa, so a, a non-Jewish girl, while his wife was seven or eight months pregnant. He proposed to this uh, Italian shiksa, and she agreed on condition that he convert to Catholicism. And he agreed. It wasn't his first time converting to another religion. As it turned out, back in Bulgaria... Years earlier, he had had a shiksa girlfriend, and the family had forced him to convert to the Eastern Orthodox Church at gunpoint. He did so, fled Sophia shortly before the wedding. The girl committed suicide. This time, what did he do? He went to the Terra Sancta Church, was baptized, and took the name Alexander Ivor. So now he's no longer Alexander Israel, he's Alexander Ivor. What's the advantage of taking um, a new last name, well, using church documents, and remember, Israel has no separation of church and state, so church documents have legal standing, he was able to get a new passport in his new name of Alexander Ivor. And whereas the, the wedding date was set for him to become a bigamist on November 7th and his trial to start on November 8th, he had absolutely no plan of being in the country for either his wedding or his trial. He was going to fly the coop. So in late October, Captain Israel of the Israeli Navy, who had no exit visa, could not leave the country. But Alexander Ivor, a new man, did have an exit visa. And he left on a flight to Rome on November 4th. Okay. The shiksa got nervous, and she started looking. Where is my fiancé? Where is my fiancé? And her investigative efforts bore fruit. What did she end up finding? His home address, except he wasn't home. His eight-month pregnant wife was home, and they got to meet each other. So the girlfriend and the wife met each other. The Mossad agent uh, who was resident in Rome happened to find Ivor attempting to sell documents to the Egyptian military attaché to Rome. Uh, In fact, uh, Ivor sold them uh, plans for a large IDF base for $1,500, U.S. dollars. He then agreed to fly to Egypt for further interrogation, and the military attaché bought two plane tickets for Cairo. Isser Harel, the head of the Mossad, uh, got very nervous because in his mind, and this makes a lot of sense, there's a big difference between debriefing an attaché in a foreign country, in a neutral third-party country, versus transferring an informant to the enemy country for more serious interrogation. If the Egyptians were going to do this, it must mean that they thought, maybe correctly, that this Alexander Israel or Alexander Ivor was about to divulge to them very compromising information about the state of Israel. So the Mossad needed to keep Ivor off of that flight at all costs. You have to send a team to Rome to stop it. But the problem was that at the time, the Mossad did not have um, an operations team. It had to assemble an ad hoc team 
from other members of the intelligence services, uh, most mostly from the Shabak, uh, led by Rafi Eitan, Rafi the Stinker. And uh, an ambush was set up at Fumicino Airport. I've been to that airport, okay, in Rome. And the, the goal was to take him alive. However, if he could not be taken alive, he was to be killed as a last resort. So here, a Jew could kill a Jew if needed. But Ivor never went to the airport. Uh, he surprised them. Instead of getting on a plane with his Egyptian handlers to go to to go to Cairo, he traveled Europe instead, going to a half a dozen European capitals. And the Mossad lost him. But the Mossad would get lucky every now and then. You know, every, every uh, well-deserved reputation also includes an element of luck. And Rafi Eitan was the king of good luck. Uh, what happened? In Vienna, somebody ran into Alexander Israel slash Alexander Ivor. Who was it? Well, in those days, there was a program called Nativ. I think today it's like a gap year program in Israel for, for 18-year-olds. But back in the old days, what was Nativ? Nativ was the Israeli government's operation in the, for, in the Soviet Union to try to keep contact with the Jewish community and provide them with you know a sense of Yiddishkeit and hopefully get them to eventually uh, immigrate. So in Vienna, the, the Nativ operative was working there, and his wife happened to be a Bulgarian-born Jew. And on the street one day, the wife of the native operative happened to see a former classmate of hers from Sofia, Bulgaria. And who was it? Alexander Israel. And she mentions it in passing to her husband, who knows that this guy's a wanted man by the Mossad. He tips off the Mossad uh, uh, station chiefs in Europe. And the wife uh, is told, well, go have lunch with this guy tomorrow at a restaurant and we'll be sitting at the table next to you unbeknownst to him. And then we'll start tailing him and we'll be able to capture Alexander Ivor. Okay, so she does exactly that. Um, and the Mossad tails him. And they find him uh, taking a flight to Paris. So one of their more attractive-looking female agents gets on the same flight to Paris, sits next to him, drums up a conversation with the guy. Now, if you remember, the very same thing sort of happens with which character? Mordechai Vanunu, 30 years later. Okay, the female operative striking up a conversation and then ensnaring the guy. So what happens? Uh, They go to Paris and the woman says, oh, my friends can give us a ride to the hotel. They get in the car. They go wherever they're going to some safe house. And Ivor has a chloroform put on his face. He falls into a deep sleep. When he wakes up, they're interrogating him. He admits to selling information to the Egyptians for money. Uh, And the plan was to bring him back to Israel for trial. And as I mentioned last time, that's where things went terribly wrong. Why this is a black mark on the record of the Mossad is because he dies on the way home. What happened? Uh, He was put in a crate in a Dakota cargo plane of the IAF, of Israel Air Force, which flew weekly uh, uh, trips back and forth to France. And the plane had to refuel in Rome and in Athens. And the doctor was an anesthesiologist named Dr. Yona Elan. He was injecting uh, Alexander Israel with uh, some uh, anesthetics to keep him uh, asleep. But on the last leg of the journey, the, the, the patient slash prisoner started foaming at the mouth and choking and died, had a heart attack and died. What happened? So the doctor claimed that the change in the, the repeated change in cabin pressure and sudden change in cabin pressure on uh, a man under anesthesia, that's what caused him to die. Others speculated that, um, no, what happened was that he was given an overdose and it was the doctor's fault. The doctor was not taken off of the roster of Mossad operatives. In fact, he was the doctor involved in the Eichmann capture as well. And in that instance, it all worked out just fine. Eichmann came back to Israel alive. Uh, Well, when the plane landed in Tel Aviv, the question is what to do now. So Isser Harel, who was at the airport, told the pilot, everyone's going to get off the plane. You're going to fly back up in the air with one other other, uh, crewmate. And when you get out of Israeli territorial waters, you're going to throw the, the body overboard. And Rekachava, that's exactly what happened. They threw the body out the plane, and uh, it was uh, over and done with. So 
The question is, would the story be buried or not? At the time, uh, Moshe Sharet was the prime minister, and Sharet agreed with Isser Harel that it would be a good idea to bury the story. Tell a fake version to the public, leak to the media some kind of phony baloney story, and get the Mossad off the hook. So, in fact, Alexander Israel had plans to go to South America. He had shipped passage to Brazil. So the phony story that was told to his wife and to the general public was that he was still alive in, in South America somewhere and we can't find him. And the family actually believed it. And the, the, the truth of the matter wasn't revealed to the general public until many, many, many years later. Rafi Eitan was against this. He felt that it was wrong to tell a lie to the family. It was wrong to deceive the public. But Isser Harel was the boss and Rafi couldn't overrule Isser because Isser's Mr. Security. Okay, so that's the, the, the larger story of Alexander Israel, which was a really ugly episode uh, in 1954. Now let's tell a different version, a different story involving a Jew who sells out his country, but which ends a little bit in a happier manner than the Alexander Israel story. And this is the story of Zev Avni. Zev Avni was born Wolf Goldstein in Riga, Latvia, and he grew up in Switzerland. And um, he served in the Swiss Army during World War II. Uh, and in 1948, he made Aliyah to Israel and lived on Kibbutz HaZoreya. But he had an interest in serving in the foreign ministry, and he knew a lot of languages. He was a pretty suave guy, educated man. So um, he, he joined the foreign ministry. And he was willing to do any chore he worked a lot of overtime. He wanted to work and wanted to be involved and be important. And he frequently interacted with the Mossad. They trusted him as a courier for things. He was posted in Brussels and then was posted by the foreign ministry in Belgrade in Yugoslavia. He, while in Belgrade, suggested that um, the Mossad set up a field headquarters in Belgrade. And Isser Harel refused. He refused. Avni was was not happy about this. He was kind of uh, dejected. And in April of 1956, he came home on a private visit, not on, on government business, but a private visit. He came home from his posting in Belgrade and he asked to see Isser Harel. Avni was nervous because he knew he was guilty, but he wanted to see Harel about setting up this, this Mossad station house. And Harel asked him, what are you doing here? Like, why are you home? The, the foreign ministry didn't send you home. You're home on private matters. And he said, well, you know, I'm on a second marriage, but I have an eight-year-old daughter from my first marriage, and she's hucking me a China because she wants to see me. So I came home to see my eight-year-old daughter. Now, in Harel's mind, a, a foreign service officer doesn't just come home because his eight-year-old daughter wants to see him. There's got to be something beyond the the, you know, the surface version of the story, and Harel's going to get to the bottom of it. Okay, so Harel said when when asked about the, the the Mossad headquarters, he said no. But 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 then Harel said to Avni, you know, come back to my private office tomorrow. I want to see you tomorrow at the secret uh, the secret office. So the next day, Zev Avni shows up at in downtown Tel Aviv at a, a private office for Mr. Harel. Harel slams the door shut and goes after Avni like a raging bull and says to him, you're a Soviet agent. Confess, confess. Okay. And then he says, if you cooperate, I can help you. But if you don't cooperate, then dot, 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 fill in the blank. You know what, the, what your story is going to be. So Avni was taken aback, sweating bullets, and all of a sudden he confesses, yes, I work for the Soviets. What, what was the truth? It turned out that Zev Avni had been a communist since his teenage years in this in Switzerland, and he had worked in the, during World War II. Yes, he was an officer in the Swiss Army, but really he was a mole. He was a Soviet spy in the Swiss Army, and was revealing information about Allied, uh, you know, the Western part of the Allies, uh, their their military activities. And he was instructed to move to Israel and to await further instructions. In other words, go long-term undercover as a mole in Israel. Moscow then did not contact Avni for a long time 
until he was posted by the foreign ministry in Brussels. Avni gave the Russians the Israeli secret code. So the, 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 the ciphers for, for, for the Israeli foreign ministry, Avni coughed it up to the Soviets. The Soviets were now able to read much of what was floating around uh, Israeli embassies in Europe. It's bad stuff. Um, he even revealed to the Soviets the identity of several ex-Nazis who were spying for Israel, which we spoke about. Uh, uh, actually, we, we didn't speak about it last time. We'll get to that maybe in a couple of weeks. We get to the to the to the uh, the German scientist issue. Okay, so the USSR or the KGB wanted Zev Avni to infiltrate the Mossad. Harel, the tr- truth of the matter is, Harel had no real evidence that Avni was a spy. It was all intuition, but the circumstantial details seemed to add up. Now, here you had a guy who was always interested in doing overtime work, desperate to set up a Mossad office where it doesn't belong, coming back and forth on private business, uh, you know, a, a guy whose background doesn't entirely check out. So Harel took a, took a guess, a gamble, and he was right. Avni confessed at the trial and was given a 14-year prison sentence. However, he was paroled after nine years, and then he moved to Switzerland, but then, shockingly, moved back to Israel. So a guy who had been spying uh, for the Soviets against Israel and had gone back to the land of his youth, then came back to Israel and became a model citizen. He joined a farming community and became known uh, as a friend to many of the people who had interrogated him. He was a nice guy. He was known as the gentleman spy, the gentleman spy. Uh, he eventually came to work for the army as a psychologist. So he came full circle. The, the, the affair was known as Operation Pygmalion, and it was kept secret for many, many years. But the importance of this episode of the Zev Avni affair was that it... Um, it boosted Harel's growing reputation that Isser Harel had, had found a spy working at a pretty high level against Israel on intuition alone and had gotten the guy to confess. So of the various things that worked in Isser's favor, th- this was one of them. Okay, now let's tell the story about Khrushchev's speech. So this may be something that some of you are familiar with Um but it's it's a, a fun little story in the history of the Mossad because it all came by accident. You know, sometimes, again, you get lucky. Sometimes a reputation is deserved from great skill. Sometimes it's a little bit of luck. Okay, so what happened? Victor Grayevsky, whose real name was Victor Spielman, a Jew, was having a, an affair or was in a, ro- a romantic relationship with Lucia Baranovsky. Who was Lucia Baranovsky? The secretary to the secretary general. Okay? The secretary to the secretary general. Of what? Of the Polish Communist Party. Okay. So here you have a guy who's a Jew, who's a reporter. He's a reporter for one of the the, the, the Warsaw newspapers. And he's in a relationship with a girl with access to a high-ranking Polish official. Who was Victor? Victor uh, was, was a Jew who's parents and sisters had moved to Israel in 1949. During the Shoah, they had actually moved far to the east. They would escaped through Russia. They came back to Poland after the war. Uh, but the parents and sisters didn't like Poland. They made Aliyah as soon as it was possible for them to do so. But Victor was an ardent communist, and he did not move to Israel. He stayed in Poland. Okay, so this doesn't sound like a guy who's about to play a heroic role for Israel. He's a Fabrenta communist. But as we'll see, sometimes things change and people's attitudes change. Well, he began getting disenchanted with communism in the the years between 49 and uh, 53, with the death of Stalin, and 55 when this episode uh, happens. So in 1955, he visited Israel. He was allowed... Now, this was a rarity for a Polish citizen a Jewish-Polish citizen in 1955 to visit family in Israel was a very rare occurrence, but for whatever reason, he was allowed to do so. And when he got to Israel, he liked what he saw. He saw a socialist country, which was not a communist dictatorship, 
but rather a flourishing modern society, a democratic society, yes, that was also socialist. So this appealed to him. It was much better than the dark, drab Soviet Union. So in, in 1956, in April, when Victor walked into his girlfriend's office and saw a red envelope that said top secret on it, he wondered what it was. And he realized this may be an opportunity to damage the Soviet cause that he now despises and do some good for the adversaries of the Soviet Union. Now, what was it? So he he asked the girlfriend, can I take it home with me? And she says, yeah, but you have to bring it back by four o'clock because I have to put it in the safe and lock it up and make sure nobody knows that it was gone. So you could take it for a few hours, but you got to bring it back. What was it? He went home. He saw it was Nikita Khrushchev's speech from February 25th, 1956 to the 20th Party Congress. Well, this speech was one of the most famous speeches in Soviet history, if not the most famous. It was four hours long as originally delivered. And in the room at the time, only were the 1,400 members of the Party Congress. Everyone else was was kicked out of the room. Nobody was allowed to hear it who wasn't supposed to hear it. And there were uh, originally no copies of it made. Eventually, the copies were sent, a handful, numbered copies to the, to the secretaries general of the various communist parties in the Soviet bloc countries. That's how this, the Polish guy got a, got a hold of it. But basically, knowledge of this speech was kept to a very bare minimum. In the Western countries, they heard about it, but they didn't know the exact content. Now, what did they hear about it? They heard, correctly so, that um, Khrushchev had declared Stalin to be a war criminal and to be a, a mass murderer, that he killed millions of his own citizens and had run gulags. All the Averis, all the terrible sins, the barbarism, the purges of the Stalinist era were laid bare in Khrushchev's speech. So... What was the thinking in Western intelligence circles about the, the relevance of this speech? Well, number one, it may be that Khrushchev is going to uh, adopt a more moderate posture domestically and not run you know, things with an iron fist like his predecessor Stalin did. And that, that was in, in part true. Um, but more importantly, if this information could be released to the general public, then... Millions and millions of people who are avowed communists might be disillusioned with communism and it could lead to the collapse of the Soviet Union. That was sort of the pious hope in Western intelligence circles uh, between the time of the speech and its release and shortly thereafter. But nobody could get a copy of it, despite the best efforts of uh, MI5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and uh, the CIA and every other, uh, the German intelligence services, nobody could get a copy of it. Okay, so what did Victor do? Here, Victor Graevsky, Victor Spielman, the Jew in Warsaw, happens to have it in his hands. He brings it to the Israeli embassy in Warsaw, where a Shabak representative, a Shinbet representative, took it, copied it, and handed it back. Victor returned the original copy to his girlfriend's office, and nobody noticed that anything was amiss. Nobody realized that Victor had gone to the Israeli embassy. He got away with it. Okay. Now, back in Tel Aviv, on April 13th, Amos Manor, who's now the head of the Shin Bet, reads the speech in the original because he spoke Russian. Now, let me just give you a little bit about, about Amos Manor. What's the story with him? So, when Israel, when the state was founded, Israel became the head of the Shin Bet, and he was the head of the Shin Bet from 1948 to 1952. Uh, but in 52, Ruven Shiloach, who had been the head of the, of the Mossad, retired, was fired, basically for ineptitude. They 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 let him go out to the pasture, and Ben Gurion made Israel the head of the Mossad. Uh, very briefly, he was the head of both Mossad and the Shin Bet, but then uh, some sort of figurehead. Uh, the guy in charge of the Shin Bet took over for a year, and then Amos Manor took over. But really, Harel was actually the main boss, controlling both Mossad and Shin Bet, but Manor was nominally the head of the Shin Bet. Manor was a, a, a Holocaust survivor, uh, survived Auschwitz, and was involved in Aliyah Bet, the illegal immigration to Israel. He was from Romania, um, and in 1949 moved to Israel. And by 1953, he was the head of the Shin Bet. So four years after arriving in the country, he was the head of the, of the, of the domestic security services. A very rapid rise to prominence, but he was a talented guy. And unlike Isser Harel, 
Isra was a little guy, sort of drab in appearance. Manor was a European gentleman, a tall, dash, sort of better-looking guy who wore a fancy suit, as opposed to Isser, who with the open collar and looked like a schlub. Um, okay, so Manor reads the speech, and he recognizes that this is a bonanza. This is a great thing. He races it over to Ben-Gurion's apartment, and Ben-Gurion reads it. Now, what could this speech do for Israel? Let me explain. Up until that time, the the relationship between the Mossad and the CIA had largely been limited to collaboration uh, with Israel providing some intelligence to the United States, uh, gleaned from debriefing Soviet and Eastern Bloc Jews who made Aliyah. In other words, there weren't that that many who came 49 to 55 from Soviet Union, Poland, etc. I mean, there were some, but some of them had served in the military or had some technological knowledge. And Israel would interrogate, you know, not interrogate, but question these people upon arrival, see what, what information they had, which was useful, and then would pass it along to the to the CIA, to the contact point, James Jesus Angleton, Jim Angleton, who was running counter-espionage at the CIA and was the contact with the Mossad. Uh, in this particular instance, um, instead of having a, a, a the speech relayed by telex or, or other technological means to Angleton, it was brought by special courier, hard copy, flying to America, to Langley headquarters, where it was received by Angleton and then Alan Dulles and then President Eisenhower himself. So Eisenhower, very quickly after the speech came to Washington, is reading it on his desk. Tiny little Israel had done what all the the major Western powers could not do, get the Khrushchev speech. It was printed in the New York Times on June 5th, 1956. The CIA leaked it to the Times for the purpose of wide distribution, uh, and it may have had a significant effect. After all, in 1956, there were popular uprisings, both in Poland and in Hungary, against communist rule, against Soviet uh, dominance. Uh, and Yeshomrim, there are those who would argue that the impact of the widespread knowledge of Khrushchev's speech about Stalin's crimes played a role in the popular unrest. But in any event, whatever its impact in Eastern Europe, the bottom line is it had major uh, uh, was a major breakthrough in the relationship and strengthening of the ties of the Mossad and the CIA. Okay, now what what's the aftermath of this story? Uh, at least as far as Victor is concerned, our friend Victor, the Jew. So in 1957, Victor moved to Israel. He made Aliyah. He joined his parents and his sisters in Eretz Israel, And he went to an Ulpan because he didn't know a word of Hebrew. And at the Ulpan, who does he run into? Soviet spies, Soviet diplomats. And what do they want to do? They uh, try to co-opt him. Now, I don't think they knew what he had done, but they knew where he had come from and that he was a talented guy and a reporter in his former life. So they try to co-opt him to be a, a spy for the KGB operating out of Israel. He immediately went to the Mossad and said, what should I do? And they said, become a double agent. Okay, so he served for the next 14 years as a double agent, being given false information by the Mossad to pass along to the KGB. Pass along to the KGB. And the, the KGB never caught on. All those years, they thought he was providing them with reliable information. Uh, only one time did he ever tell them the truth. What was the one time he told them the truth? When, just before the Six-Day War, if you're familiar with your Six-Day War history, the war began because the Soviet Union was lying to the Egyptians, claiming that Israel was about to invade Syria. It wasn't true. And Israel was not really sure whether or not the Soviet Union was deliberately lying or actually believed that, that, that Israel had malevolent intentions against Syria. So they used every means at their disposal to try to convince the Russians that we don't intend to go to war. And one of those means was using Victor, uh, Victor Spielman to tell the his handlers, by the way, Israel doesn't intend to go to war. 
and the Russians ignored it, either deliberately because they knew it, they, they didn't care about the truth, or just because they thought it, what Victor was telling them was false. Um, in any event, Victor was uh, awarded the Lenin Medal for service to the fatherland, and he he could have picked it up if he went to the ceremony in Moscow. He wisely chose to forego the ceremony. He never picked up his medal from Lenin, or the Lenin Medal from Moscow. And years after that, he was given an honor by the by the state of Israel. So he goes down in the record books as probably the only person ever to be honored as a double agent by both countries, the one he really served and the one he didn't really serve. Uh, and there's a, the medal is sitting somewhere in a vault in the, in the Kremlin somewhere waiting for him to pick it up, but he died about 15 years ago. Okay. Now, let me talk a little bit now about how Isser Harel was able to rise to such power uh, and the way he ran the security services during his tenure. So after 1948, David Ben-Gurion, once the war was over, Ben-Gurion was more focused on domestic security concerns than he was on international security concerns. Yes, I mean, he was worried about Arab, the Arab states, but the Arab states had been defeated and it would take a few years for them to recover. But when it comes to the espionage and the like and, and surveillance and all that, he was more concerned locally than he, than he had eyes abroad. And so he was paying attention to the work that Harel did in the Shin Bet, um, which is why, because he liked what Harel was doing, he eventually promoted him to, the, to, be, to be the head of the Mossad and the, the Mumune, the designated man, the chief of, secu- of, of overall security. Um, Harel, in many ways, ran a goon squad for the Mapai. Let me say that again. Harel ran a goon squad for the Mapai. What was the Mapai? Mifleget, Hoalei, Eretz, Yisrael. Mapai, the, the party of David Ben-Guri. Mapai had been running the country since 1933 and would run the country until 1977. 44 years, they ran the show. And it became very tempting for, uh, for, for people in the Mapai and in the security services to identify the party's interests as being the state's interests, that they're one and the same. Now, in a democracy, that's not true. In a one-party system, like in a, in a, in a, in a dictatorship, yes, of course, that's the case. But in a, in a multi-party parliamentary system, that's not supposed to be true. Um, but he was able to get away with it because he was totally loyal to Ben-Gurion and because when things went wrong, the committee of inquiry to investigate what went wrong um, was always composed only of members of the Mapai. Now, in a multi-party parliamentary system, what are you supposed to have? That committees of inquiry have representation from various parties all across the ideological spectrum. And so you can't cover up uh, you know, indiscretions because there are people of your, uh, who are opposing political forces who will know about it. But Israel in the 1950s was able to get away with this because Ben-Gurion ran a tight ship. Okay. Now, what was um, Harel's main uh, job? So his main job with the Shin Bet was to look into political adversaries of the government, both to the right and to the left. Let's begin with the right. Harel in 49, 50, 51, accused the Irgun, or former members of the Irgun, who had formed the Khairut party, of attempting to establish some kind of military underground and eventually have a, a, a coup against the regime. This was totally false. In fact, Menachem Begin really did become a, a democratic parliamentarian of the highest order. He, he would, cared for procedure and, and he, would, he would sit in the sessions in the Knesset. He was a legislator, yes, in the opposition, so his stuff didn't get passed. But he became a real legislator. He was not some kind of a, a, a subversive figure looking to undermine the, the, the government. Um, so Harel was wrong about that. Harel was able to get take credit for busting up the Brita Kanaim, the covenant of the zealots. The covenant of the zealots was a, a, a messianic 
extreme religious faction, mostly Sephardic kids in their late teens, early 20s, who in the early 50s were threatening to blow up uh, mosques and, 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 and undermine the secular character of the state and establish a theocracy. Uh, uh, a man who would go on to become the Sephardic chief rabbi of the country was a participant in uh, the Brit HaKanaim. Uh, but these were all rank amateurs. There was never any real threat from them. Harel was able to take credit for foiling the attempted assassination of the transportation minister by an extreme secularist, by a member of the Lehi. Remember, the Lehi and the Irgun were the two right-wing organizations. But whereas Irgun had a lot of um, religious influence on it, Lehi was mostly a bunch of... Uh, you know, atheistic, agnostic type secularists. And when busing was disallowed on Shabbos in certain municipalities, so an extreme secular Lechiite threatened, uh, uh, tried to kill the, the transportation minister and was, uh, the plot was followed by the, by the Shin Bet. Um, then we go to the left side of the aisle. Nobody had a problem with Isser, um, Working against the, the Israeli Communist Party, the Mifleget Communist Israeli Maki, or actually before that it had a different iteration, but uh, uh, it was a, a communist, communist Party of Israel. Why did no one have a problem with this? Because although Israel was a left of center country with a socialist government, still the Communist Party was seen as outside the pale, beyond the Zionist consensus that they were so far overboard that their views are unacceptable and uh, it's okay to persecute them for their political views. So, no problem there. But where Isser Harel ran into a tremendous amount of problem was when he went after the Mapam. The United Workers' Party. Mapam was the second largest political party, trailing only the Mapai. And although it was to the left of the Mapai, still it was undoubtedly Zionist. The Mapam set up kibbutzim all over the country, and the leading figures in the Palmach and the IDF were former were members of the Mapam. So to go after them and to say that they're subversive, that's a, br- a bridge too far. Okay, so Arel did this because at as Ben-Gurion turned towards Western orientation, towards the America and away from the Soviet Union, the Mapam turned against Ben-Gurion and supported Stalin. So in the, in the early 50s, up until Stalin's death in 53, the Mapam said nice things about Joseph Stalin, Uncle Joe. And Isser Harel believed, whether correctly or incorrectly, who's to say, but he believed that the Mapam, with officers at high levels of the IDF, would eventually attempt a coup. And not just a a, 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 a low-scale coup like the Irgun could have tried, but a real coup with heavy-duty uh, military inter- intervention. So on January 29th, 1953, the surveillance uh, of the Mapam became public knowledge. How so? The Mapam held a press conference and announced that they found bugging devices in their leader, Mayor Ya'ari's uh, office. Now, Ya'ari had signed the Declaration of Independence. He was an important polit- uh, political and, and, and cultural figure in Israel. So his office had been bugged, and, and it was found out. Moreover, burglars to Mapam headquarters, it sounds like Watergate now, right? So burglars to Mapam headquarters had been caught but had been given a very light sentence in the courts, in the Israeli courts. And the reason why, Mapam presumed, is because those people were Shin Bet agents. And so the government and the security services whispered in the ears of the of the, of the judge, let them go uh, easy because they're working for the state. So Mapam then admitted that actually they had even more evidence incriminating and confirming the government's uh, surveillance of, of their party because they, Mapam, had infiltrated the IDF and the Shin Bet and the Mossad. They had their own spies spying on the Israeli spies. Okay, so here, you know, Jew spying on Jew and and in and, and reverse. Uh, so it's a kind of an ugly situation. But they did so out of their own sense of desire for survival. 
this would go on for a while until ultimately the the, the, the various parties on the left side of the aisle would, would coalesce in the, in the Israeli Labor Party. But that would happen much later. Okay. Now, the Shin Bet had three major divisions. One was protective security for VIPs, which, you know, for the most part, doesn't get much attention until when? Until Rabin's assassination in 1995, when it, it emerges that they were inept and didn't know what they were doing. Second uh, part of the Shin Bet was Arab minority affairs. In other words, the Israeli Arabs who were living under military administration until 1965, they are being watched by the domestic security services, by the Shin Bet. And the third division was non-Arab affairs, which is counter-espionage, meaning watching over diplomats in the country to make sure they're not stealing secrets and selling them, and watching over political extremists on the left and the right. So, it's interesting. One of one of the things that um, the communist countries did to annoy Israel and to waste Israeli time and effort of the security services was to have even their legitimate diplomats, the, the, the legitimate diplomats of the communist countries who had diplomatic relations with Israel, they would know how to lose a tail. You know, the, the, the Shin Bet was tailing them in their vehicles and watching over them. It takes a certain matter of sophistic- a level of sophistication to know how to lose a tail. So if you do that, the security services are going to think you're doing so because you're a clandestine operative. You're, you have something to hide. But in fact, sometimes these people had nothing to hide. They just want to have uh, the Israelis go on a wild goose chase. Okay. The Shin Bet tried all sorts of things in the early 50s to get information from unlikely sources. Usually this didn't work very well. Uh, I mean, it was known that they tried using money and women to get the Marines guarding the U.S. Embassy to start spilling secrets. Uh, it hardly had any effect. The, the Shin Bet and the Mossad tried to recruit the best, those with potential and those who evinced a great deal of patriotism. One of the the, the fringe benefits of working for the security services was that you could go on trips abroad whether because they really needed you on a clandestine mission or just because you were a courier send, uh, bringing something from point A to point B, it was a fringe benefit that was given to uh, members of the security services at a time when your average Israeli could not travel at all. Most Israelis had no money back then, and a lot of countries had no diplomatic relations with Israel. Even going to Europe, which today is nothing for your average Israeli, back then was a near impossibility. So you got the fringe benefit, the excitement of world travel. Fine. But Harel demanded total total loyalty to the job. And you have to work. And you can't waste. We're a poor country. We can't afford frivolous expenses. No fancy hotels. No fancy restaurants. The one exception later on by the 1970s, was that on Yom Ha'atzma'ut, if you were a Mossad operative, you were allowed to go to the most expensive restaurant in the city in which you were posted and have a celebratory dinner. So usually that was a trafe restaurant, and these are not religious, you know, spies in Achilonim, but uh, that was the one exception. On Yom Ha'atzma'ut, you could celebrate with some some champagne and a, and a, and a trafe steak. Okay, well, uh, some parts of the budget, by their very nature were not conducive to yielding legitimate receipts. Like, for example, if you bribe a foreign official or whatever hush money payments you have to make in in the pursuit of a legitimate goal of the security services, how are you going to get a receipt for that? You can't. So they relied heavily on the honor system. But if you were caught lying, that could be the end of your career. Moreover, Israel was a, a poor country and didn't have creature comforts that were available in many of the Western states. So if you were caught smuggling a a television or home appliances or recording devices that were available as consumer goods in in America or or France, but were unavailable in Israel, you you could be fined and fired for it, or at minimum reprimanded. The moral standards had to remain high. Moreover, if you were guilty of some kind of uh, uh, sexual deviance or, or you know, having families in multiple cities, Harel didn't like that. He was a puritanical, family-minded man, family guy. Okay, now, in the few minutes we have left, 
I want to mention, and I think Asher mentioned it in the chat, uh, the Lavon affair. So, you know, we spent uh, a, a good whole session a number of years ago on the Lavon affair. So I'm not going to uh, speak about it in any great depth here. However, the Lavon affair did have an impact on the Shin Bet and the Mossad. The Lavon affair was the sin of the military intelligence, Amat. It was known as the Esed Bish, or the rotten business, and it reflected very poorly on military intelligence. Too much authority was left in the hands of daring but uncontrolled young intelligence commanders. And Amman's disgrace helped boost the positive reputation cultivated by Isser Harel for the Mossad and Shin Bet. In other words, Amman are unreliable. They fouled up. They got people killed. They got agents killed. They got Egyptian Jews killed. But the, 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 the Shin Bet and the Mossad, they know what they're doing. So Harel thought that his successes and Amman's failures in the early to mid-1950s should have resulted in uh, Isser running relations with France in late 1956. But because the ties with France were largely military to military, Ben-Gurion gave responsibility to General Yehoshaphat Harkabi, who was the head of Amman, who replaced Ghibli, who had failed in the Lavon affair. Harel was annoyed, was very annoyed. And in the build-up to war, the Suez War of 56, and in the subsequent nuclear cooperation with France, it would be in the hands not of Isser Harel, but of Moshe Dayan and Shimon Peres. Dayan being the chief of staff of the army, Peres being the deputy defense minister, but the day-to-day uh, mover and shaker in, uh, in the defense ministry. So um, you know, next ne- next session that we're going to have will be all about the, the Suez War, the role of the clandestine services in that war, and then the, the lead-up to building a nuclear weapon, the, the deal with France and Dimona. But uh, I want to, uh, just in the couple of minutes we have left, discuss where Amman did have some uh, security um, successes. So the real problem in the early 50s was the Fedayin from Gaza. And a thousand Jews were killed in southern Israel between 51 and 55 by the Fedayin operating out of Gaza. So something had to be done at the clandestine level to put this to an end. Unit 504 under Rahav Yavardi had hundreds of Arab agents who were being paid off, whether with money, with women, with offer of prestige, uh, and they gave information to military intelligence. And Unit 188, led by Natan Rothberg, would build special bomb packages and they would send the bombs uh, and, and, and kill certain targets. The, as, as Rothberg said, it's not my job to forgive the Fedayin and the Fedayin's handlers for their sins and for their murders, but it is my job to arrange their meeting with God. So that was uh, his, his attitude. Now, the next solution, because the little bombs were only picking off one or two people here or there, the next solution was Ariel Sharon's Unit 101. Uh, and I think in the past we spoke about in the, in the biography of Sharon, Unit 101 was basically a, a hodgepodge of Sharon's friends operating not even in military uniforms sometimes, in civilian clothes, crossing the border with high firepower and killing a lot of civilians, to be honest, especially in, in the Jordanian West Bank. The episode of the massacre at Kibia was the worst of, of these various episodes where 69 Arabs were killed uh, as a retaliation to the death of two Jews. Uh, the most famous uh, collaborator with, with, with Sharon was Mayor Hartzion, Mayor Harzion, who was considered the, the bravest soldier since Bar Kokhba. His sister was murdered. Uh, uh, and so in retaliation, he took a bunch of his guys and killed a few Bedouin. So... At the time, Sharet was the prime minister when Ben-Gurion was on his um, uh, on his hiatus in Stabokir. And Sharet thought to himself, you know, what's going on here? Are the, are the young people of Israel the humanitarians of the Bible or the cutthroats of the Bible? You know, the Bible offers two, two notions of the, of the Israelite heart. 
one which is uh, you know righteousness and justice, and the other which is bloodthirsty and goodish. So the uh, the death of uh, of of Roy Rothberg, which I spoke about on Shabbos in the shul uh, this past Shabbos in my sermon, was another important turning point for the Amman, because um, Rothberg was killed on April 29th, 1956, as he was defending Nachal Oz against Fedayim. Moshe Dayan, the head, of the, the head of the army, shows up the next day and gives the eulogy. For those of you who were in shul on Shabbos, you heard me read the eulogy out loud. For those of the rest of the 25 of you listening tonight who are not in my shul, go look up Dayan's eulogy for Roy Rothberg. It's available on Wikipedia. You'll find it very easily. It's also, you can listen to it in the original from Dayan's voice on YouTube. And the Hebrew is better than the English. So uh, Rothberg's cousin was Natan Rothberg, who ran the bomb squad, Unit 188. And the decision was reached to kill the head of military uh, of the Egyptian military in Gaza, who was sending out the Fedayin, and to kill the Egyptian military attaché in Amman, in Jordan. Because the two of them, Mustafa Hafez and Salah Mustafa, were responsible for all this, this terrorism. Now, if you have Ber- Ronan Bergman's Rise and Kill First, so this is like one of the small chapters early in the book, where they go after... Uh, Hafez and Mustafa. And on July 11th, my birthday, 1956, before I was born, um, the two of them are blown to pieces with Roy Ro- with Natan Rothberg's uh, bombs. How were they able to get the package to Amman in a way which was convincing that uh, Salah Mustafa would actually open it? So brilliantly, they had Mistarvim, you know, uh, uh, members of the of the of the Amman intelligence services who dressed and appeared like Arabs, crossed over in Jerusalem to the eastern side of the city and put the package in the post office with an East Jerusalem Jordanian postmark. And so since it came from East Jerusalem, Salah Mustafa didn't have any reason to suspect that it was uh, anything other than a a gift from, from somebody. He opened it up, boom, 300 grams of explosives in his face, he died. Okay, so with this we'll stop. Uh, I gave you today a flavor of you know, traitorous Israelis who were working for the wrong side, whether for the Soviet Union or for the or for Arab state, why, what their motivations were, the failures of the Amman intelligence services, the successes of Amman, the, uh, the battles between the Shin Bet and uh, those political parties, not the Mapai. And uh, next, we'll have class next week, not in two weeks, but next week, next Tuesday, we'll have class and we'll get into the 56 war and the nuclear uh, topic. So now, if you would like to ask a question, I'm going to allow you to unmute. One second. You, people uh, allow participants to unmute. Okay, if you want to ask a question, now's your chance. Three, two, one, no questions. Well, on that note, everybody, a good night, and I'll see you all next week. Happy okay. Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to one and all.